Paul has been before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. He's been in Caesarea for about two years. And then finally, understanding that any way he was going to be treated there was unjust, also knowing, chapter 23, verse 11, that the Lord appeared to him after the riot in Jerusalem and said, you're on your way to Rome. You're going to get to Rome. So Paul knew that needed to take place. So in front of King Agrippa and Festus, he appeals to Caesar. So I don't want to be tried in Jerusalem. And of course, they're talking to each other and said, you know, this guy hasn't done anything worthy of death. Um, if, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could just let him go. So that's the pickle that these guys are in. And chapter 27 then begins saying, And when it was determined that we, Lucas with him, should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners, those other prisoners, different word, probably on their way to the arena to be fed to animals, They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustus band. Now, again, as we head into this, um, historians and even Bible critics have said Luke's record of this navigational narrative is unsurpassed in history. The terms, the words, his understanding of navigation and that, that part of the world and what was taking place. And he gives us remarkable details as we move into this. He tells us here that Paul and other prisoners now are committed into the care of a centurion named Julius. All the centurions we run into through scripture are of good character. They're noble, not all believers, but evidently uh, having to have a, a, a measure of character to attain to a place where they had a hundred men under them. And um, it tells us this Julius, again, he is a member of the Augustus band, which Augustus then was the ruler of the Supreme, which was Nero. Uh, they were studied and is, uh, they were stationed. Any of you guys have been to Israel with us? Um, Caesarea Philippi Banias, that was the area, in, in they just called that area Syria in that day, where these royal guards were stationed. They had the highest uh, character in that day. They had direct access to Caesar. So quite often when prisoners... Uh, nobility, whatever it might be, was on their way to Rome, it would be a centurion from the Augustus band that would accompany them. Again, several hundred years as Rome begins to disintegrate, they had no favor with the troops because they thought they were going back to Rome to betray them to Caesar and so forth. But here it's a much different atmosphere, and Paul is handed to this man, Julius. It tells us then, in verse 2, Entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched 
meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with, Luke says, us again. So Aristarchus we meet earlier in the book of Acts. He is one of the men, one of the Gentiles that brought the great offering from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem. And evidently he's been with Paul for these last two years as well. And uh, he is with Luke now ready to make this journey. And they're going from, it's easier for me to do it up here, but then you could see it. They're going from Caesarea. Um, they're launching out from there. And look, the journey's going to go all, it takes over five months for them finally uh, to get there through a number of circumstances. Uh, it says the ship is from Adraminium, which is, which is up here along the coast. So the ship they board on, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's the whole route to Rome taking again over five months. And they're leaving from Caesarea, which is there with uh, the, the centurion, Luke and Aristarchus with Paul. And Adraminium is up Right in this area, it's a ship of Adraminium. So the captain of the ship or the owner of the ship, some type of merchantman, no doubt, is headed back in that direction. The centurion, Julius, wants to find passage on a larger ship, which will then take them to Rome. This smaller ship would not. So... They get on the smaller ship and they begin their journey on the ship with Aristarchus and so forth, this Macedonian being with us. And he said, and the next day we touched at Sidon, 67 miles, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and he gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. So they start out and they go from Caesarea to Zidon, which is about 67 miles up the coast to Sidon. Doesn't look like it, but that's 67 miles again. Probably a good journey may have taken them a day. It seems like the winds were at their back when they did that. And when they get to Sidon, it says that this Julius, he courteously philanthropon. It's the only time that word's used in the New Testament. We have filio, we have versions of it, but it's philotropos there. It, it speaks of courtesy, it speaks of kindness. He entreated Paul kindly, courteously, and he gave him liberty to go unto his friends and to refresh himself. So remarkably, Paul in his missionary journeys has made friends with the church that's there at Zidon. And this centurion who could lose his life if he loses his prisoner gives Paul liberty to go ashore to fellowship with the Christians there to visit his friends. So this guy Julius must have been at Caesarea. Maybe he knew Cornelius. We don't know. He was probably standing in the theater when Paul addressed Festus and Agrippa. He understands who Paul is. And Paul is a Roman citizen. And he's treating him with the utmost respect. He actually believes, I can let this guy go. 
He's going to go ashore. He's going to fellowship with the believers there, and he's going to come back to me, and I'm not going to lose him, which is just remarkable. Now, understand that he would be refreshed. Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus have to have supplies for this journey where they're going to pick the bigger ship up. Um, These larger ships would go from Rome down to Alexandria, which normally would take about two weeks, and then from Alexandria back to Rome, which took over 57 days because of the winds were moving in the wrong direction on the way back. The displacement on these grain ships was huge, and it wasn't until the 19th century we had merchant ships as large as Rome's grain ships. They were 180 to 200 feet long. They were 40 foot across. The mast went 44 foot down through the deck to the keel. You have to understand how huge these ships were. There was a few cabins where the captain would be. We don't know if because Paul was with a centurion at this point, certainly as he traveled as a Christian, he was always sleeping on the deck. And we're going to find out there's 276 souls involved on this journey. They would pitch tents on the deck. The wind would be blowing uh, and we're going to find out it's the time of the year when it's cold. They had to bring their own food. They had to bring their own blankets and so forth. Uh, whether Paul was allowed to be below in a cabin, we have no idea. But this is a tough journey. There isn't anything easy about this at all. And remarkably, as Paul goes to the church there in Sidon, he must explain to them, we're going to ship to Admiridium, but we're going to go... Uh, and, and get on a larger vessel to go to Rome. And uh, they must give him the supplies then that he needs. We're going to find out interestingly as we move into this that the journey they're on is somewhere in the beginning of October. The seas were rough from the middle of September to November 11th. They advised against traveling by sea. From November 11th to March, it was basically forbidden. No, no ships traveled. But the interesting thing with the grain ships is that Rome was dependent upon Egypt for grain. There was a, over a million people. The population of the city of Rome at this point in time was over a million and I have this interesting book. It's just on the shipwreck and navigation. It just, it'll torture you, but it's great. And uh, the, Caesar, at this point in time, Claudius guaranteed in the winter the grain ships because he still needed them to travel in the winter or Rome wouldn't have grain. He guaranteed them that their ships would be insured and if the ship sank or ran aground, they lost their slip. The, the ship, Claudius would pay for the ship, the cargo, he would assume all the responsibility. So you had, you know, it's like watching these guys on TV, the, 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 what is it called, the deadliest catch or something, watching these guys go catch crabs somewhere off Alaska. They're out of their minds. Who would ever do that? Well, Paul's on one of those ships headed towards Rome at this point in time. So his friends no doubt supply him as he's about to, to move from one ship to another. He's given liberty, it says here, to, to go to his friends, to be refreshed. 
And when we had launched then, it says, now this is from Sidon, from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So they leave Sidon and they're going to go up here. Now it says under Cyprus. See that there, the red line? There, Cyprus. Everybody's with me. Cyprus there. Scholars want to argue and say, well, under Cyprus means you'd have to go that way. The, it, 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 it specifically says it's under the, 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 the protection of Cyprus because of the winds. And it tells us that Luke's going to say they sailed through the Sea of, of Cilicia, which is on this side. So clearly, if you just read the scripture, you know the path that they took. So they're going to go up here through the Sea of Cilicia, and they're going to make it over here to Myra. You guys see that? Up there over to Myra. There's a port there. It's a huge port, and they're going to go there. So it tells us when they had launched from there, they sailed under Cyprus. Now they leave Caesarea in August. They arrive in Rome the next March. because the winds were contrary. So they go on that northern side. When they had left, the wind was, there was a southern wind. As you came under Asia Minor, you started to get these northern and western winds. So then they had a track back and forth. If they could get nine degrees of the sail in the wind, it was very slow, but they tracked back and forth. They were able to move forward. So it says here, when they had then sailed over or through the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Now it tells us in, in 21 verses 1 and 3 that he was in the same territory. It says he went to Patara on his third missionary journey. And there was a church there then, which is several miles, miles from Myra. And you guys familiar with Myra? This is not a girl. This is a city, Myra. Uh, you are familiar with it. You just don't realize it. Uh, the first century church in Patara, uh, planted by Paul, um, a man and a woman there, are raised there. Their parents are from Paul's evangelizing the area. Their name is Nona and Epiphanius. So I told you you knew about Myra. You're familiar with that, right? And um, they, for years, prayed for a child, never had a child. And, and then late in life, remarkably, she conceived. And they had a baby boy. And they named him Nicholas. Now, plague went through the area. Nicholas, both his parents died of the plague. And he then moved to Myra. He loved the study of scripture. He was young. And there's a whole story then that accompanies it where the, the bishop of Myra dies. This is just free information. And all the bishops from the area come and they're praying that who's going to take his place. They can't get anybody to come in. They can't get other bishops. And the main guy that night had a dream and the Lord told him, tomorrow, the first guy to come to the cathedral, the door of the church, rather, he's a young man, he's the next bishop of Myra. So uh, he tells it to the other guys, and they get up, the first one that comes is Nicholas. 
He's, he's young. He has no idea what's going on. And they're all praising the Lord. They all surround them. They just, you know, and they instill, they, they put them in place. The city, which is a major port, is not sure whether they agree with it because of his age. He's so young. Uh, but he, he is so filled with good works. He's, he prays so much that the, the Myra falls in love with him. And under Diocletian then, there's a persecution and he's put into prison He's in prison for 30 years. Listen, down in a dungeon, no light, no air conditioning, dirt floor, no real food. In fact, and then the next Caesar comes in and he puts a stop to the whole, the whole deal and he's released. And uh, as he's released, he comes out, he's gaunt, he's white, he's sickly. And he gets a ship, he's able to get back to Myra, and the people there don't even recognize him. And when they realize that their bishop, Nicholas, is coming back, the whole place starts to go crazy. Which, you know, are you enjoying this? Okay. So what happens then, he was, he was at the, the Council of Nicaea with uh, Athanasius standing against the, the, the bad doctrine, Arianism, and so forth. But his... his Notoriety grows in, in this area of Myra. Miracles were attributed to him. And he finds out about a father who had three daughters, and he didn't have a dowry to give them so they could get married. So typically what happened then is they were sold into prostitution or they were purchased as a slave. And Nicholas hears of that, and he goes to the house at night, and he slips this bag of gold through which was enough for a dowry. And the, the father's amazed. People are hearing about this. So the first daughter gets married and Christian husband, you know. Then the next one is coming up. Same thing. Nicholas sneaks in, drops a bag of gold through the window. If you, you can get Joe Wheeler's book on St. Nicholas. That's where you're, you know, it's just a great read. He gives the historicity of it first. And then the, the, the legend said the third, for the third daughter, when he got there, he lowered the bag of gold in, and it went into a stocking that was drying, hanging by the window. You're getting the idea, right? Uh, he becomes the patron saint of Russia. He's martyred eventually. And it's in Scandinavia where they f first call him Saint Nicholas is Sante, short for Nicholas in Scandinavia is Klaus. So it's in Scandinavia where, the, where we get Santa Claus, where it comes from. Now, we've perverted all of that. He never read suit. He never reindeers, didn't do none of that stuff. But he, next to Paul, he's one of the most well-known patriarchs in the church. Again, he's the patron saint of all of Russia and uh, parts of Greece and so forth. So uh, Paul stopped at that town on his third missionary journey. I'm sure he had no idea the, the way he was going to affect the world, witnessing to a two pe several people there. And, and, and we should take that to heart. So we never know one person that you lead to Christ. What can roll out of that life? Paul then, it says, comes here to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria now, one of these huge grain ships to bring supply to Rome, 
sailing into Italy. And he put us, Luke says, thereon. Now in verse 37, he'll tell us there's 276 people aboard. That would be the prisoners, however many of them there were. It would be Paul, it would be Julius, and what other Roman soldiers are under him. Obviously, he's not doing this alone. And then the crew, and then whatever other people were on the deck getting there. There were no cruise liners. This was the cruise liner in the day. So 276 people are on board on this ship that he then picks up at Myra. And when we had sailed slowly for many days, scarce is the Greek word with difficulty. They they sailed slowly many days with difficulty. We were come over against Sindus, the wind not suffering us to sail under Crete over against Salomon. So they, they go from Myra, they come over here to Sindus. Look, just this distance, it says it took them many days and they weren't able to sail under Crete because the winds were contrary. From there over to here, Sindus, many days on this huge Ship. It took them many days to make that part of the journey, and they wanted to get to Solomon, you see, on this end of the island of Crete. Solomon, because it was a big port there. So they wanted to get to that place, Solomon. And by the way, Solomon is a Phoenician root, and it means the place to find haven from the wind in the Phoenician language. And Phoenician sailors uh, for centuries had been do their best in that time of the year to get to Solomon because the winds are blowing westward at that point in time. So it's, it says they, they, want, they, they wanted to sail under Crete to get to Solomon, but the winds are contrary, and it takes them many days with difficulty to get there. And it says, and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lhasa. So it tells us now that they came just past Salomon, the winds are blowing, and they came to Fair Havens, which is right there. This whole journey is about 700 miles and just as many months. They come there to Fair Havens. Now, you know what happens after this. I mean, they get in a storm because the captain and the owner of the ship want to press on further. You know, when you're in a place called Fair Havens, don't leave that place. That's a good place to be, Fair Havens. And they're on the south side of Crete, and the, the mountains are 8,000 foot high there, so it really breaks the wind to a degree when you get on the south side. So it says, we, we made it to Fair Havens. We came around that side of the island. No doubt by the time they get there, many days, rough seas. The sailors, no doubt, are tired. And the landlubbers are all seasick, no doubt. This is not a journey that any of us wanted to be on. This is not Disney Cruise. This is something hard for us to imagine. So they finally get to this place, Fair Havens, nigh unto the city of Lycia. Now, notice, when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, and he 
Luke gives us the timing because the fast was now already passed. Now the only Jewish feast with a fast was the Feast of Atonement, which is the end of September, the first few days of October, depending on the moon. They they discouraged shipping from the middle of September to November 11th and then forbid it in the winter. It was so dangerous. So this is a time of the year when the seas are bad, the winds are coming up, and it tells us now it's beginning of October. That's, that's what it is. Tabernacles is about seven days after this or so at the end of this feast. So we know that it's cold. This is October. This is out on the ocean. This is freezing cold. I mean, you imagine these sailors are tired. The people imagine living on the deck in the middle of this. And it says it was dangerous because it was the time of the fast. It was already past now. Feast of Atonement is over. So Paul then, look. Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive... Well, we don't know if this is a word of knowledge or just a bad feeling. He said, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt, with difficulty, with damage, and much damage, not only of the lading of the grain, what's on the ship, but of the shi- and of the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul now says, look, this is my gut. You know, th- this is... What I feel is the Lord speaking to him. I think so because this intensifies as we go on. They're going to find out they don't listen to Paul here, but the further and further and further they get into the storm, they do listen to Paul. And I think when you get to heaven, you're going to meet Julius. Because by the time this is over, this guy's got to be a believer, you know. So interesting he, Paul says, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. You know, now some people would say he needs healing of the memories. Uh, he, he says three times. Now he's written 2 Corinthians several years before this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, already written. He says three times I was beaten, once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A day and the night have I been in the deep pearls and waters and so forth. So Paul, before this record of this storm, this Euroclidon or Euroclidon, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter when you're in one. Um, Paul's already been shipwrecked three times. And on one of those shipwrecks, he said he was floating in the water for a day and a half. I would have a cardiac. As soon as I got in the water, I would hear den, 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 den. I would hear, I'd hear that music, you know. And, and so he says to these guys, hey, you know, I, I, re, I really, that's one, Fair Havens, doesn't that sound good? If I, if I was you guys, I wouldn't pull out. You know, just, now he knows he's going to get to Rome. He's thinking maybe without Luke, it may be without Aristarchus, it might be without Julius. I'm going to get there one way or another. But he's saying, I, I just feel we're going to see damage to the ship, to the cargo, to the people uh, that are on board. So he, he gives them this exhortation, uh, an admonishment, it says in verse 9, that I don't think we should do this, you know. Now, look, it says, nevertheless, That's trouble right there. 
Nevertheless, the centurion believed who he believed was the master and the owner of the ship more than those things that were spoken by Paul. Now, the master, literally in the Greek there, he's the steersman, basically the captain of the ship. The owner can either be the, actually the guy who owned the ship, who was a merchant, or the representative of the owner. He would be called that. And they're thinking, if we can get around to this next port, it'll be faster when we can get out to sea again at some point in the spring, whenever that might happen. So Paul, no doubt, with the spirit moving his heart, says, guys, this is not a good idea. I don't think we should do this. And it says, nevertheless, the centurion, and we can't blame him, the centurion believed the master and the owner. It, 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 you know, do you believe a tent maker or do you believe a sailor at this point in time? He believed the, the steersman, the captain, and the owner of the ship tells us more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And look, so many of us are headed into a storm at different times because we believe something else more than the words of Paul. It hasn't changed. We have way more words than Julius did. But you read through Paul's writings, you think he covers almost every circumstance that any of us could find ourselves in. And again, some storms are prescribed by God. Some storms are storms of instruction. Some storms are storms of correction. They come for different reasons. Jonah was a storm of correction. Uh, the men on the Sea of Galilee in the storm was a storm of instruction. Um, certainly, it may not be a storm of instruction for Paul, but it will be for everybody else who's with him. But for you and I, look, there are storms. Storms, <laughs> they come in different ways, don't they? We can be hurt. We can feel betrayed. We can have an illness. We fired from our job. You know, storms come. And sometimes we want to believe, you know, the scientist instead of the saint. You know, we want to believe Darwin instead of Moses. We want to, you know, we just, we want to believe some other voice, well, they know what they're talking about. This, this, is the, this is the captain and the owner. They know what, you know. And instead of standing back and saying, well, this is what the scripture says. I, you know, Paul wrote this and it, and it seems to fly in the face of my present circumstance. And I just feel like I should move forward and I should do this. Uh, but in Corinthians, it says this. I don't know, you know. And, and notice, you're always going to be in trouble if you ignore the word of God. And I think, of course, the Lord was speaking through Paul at this point in time. It becomes the word of God in the record that we hold in our hand. So it says that he believed the ship's master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And it says, and because the haven was not commodious. They wouldn't think that in a day or two, I'll tell you that. They were, they're going to be thinking that place really was commodious. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, so they're expecting to spend at least three, four months, 
it was not commodious to winter in, the more part, the great majority, they're voting, the more part advised to depart from there also, and if by any means they might attain unto Phoenice and there to winter, which is interesting here, which is an haven, a haven of Crete that lieth towards the southwest and, and the northwest. Thanks, Luke, for explaining that. So it says they want to leave fair havens and they want to get around to Phoenice, which is on this end of the island. It's like 170 miles, I think, over to here from where they are to Phoenice on this end. And it says there's a port there um, that faces the, the northwest and the southwest. If you see that there, um, south, it, it's, it's, it's see, it lies southwest and northwest. What historians tell us was it was a harbor. It was, it was a place where the ship could get in, and there was a big island in the middle of it. So the wind always blew in from the northwest and from the southwest to get around the island into that harbor. And that's what Luke is giving remarkable details here as they come to that place, Phoenice. And we wanted to winter there, which is a haven of Crete. It's a, it's a place, a good place, to, and it lieth towards the southwest and northwest. Now, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose Loosing from there, they sailed close by Crete. So the south wind is blowing softly now. Here they are. They need to get over to Phoenice, and a south wind would be a big help to them. Going from here over to there, south wind is blowing. And it says, with that wind blowing, the south wind blew softly. And look then they supposing they had obtained their purpose. So, you know, the word of God said one thing, but because the south wind was blowing softly, they supposed that they were getting away with not listening to the word of God. Look, we, we see that all the time. People will say here, well, yeah, you, you know, well, the Lord's blessed my business. You know, you're, you're using drugs or you're in sexual sin. Well, the Lord's blessing my business. So therefore, that must mean the south wind's blown softly. So I suppose I'm getting where I'm going, no matter what you say. Or whatever other kind of sin or bitterness or what it mean, unforgiveness, whatever it might be. And people make that mistake. Paul says, people don't realize... Romans chapter 2, that quite often what they're experiencing is the patience of God. Yes, they're in sin. You're not listening to the word of God. They're doing something wrong. And they take that as God's approval. And Paul says it isn't that. It's this, that the, the long suffering of God seeks to bring someone to repentance the fact that God doesn't bring the hammer down right away is not so someone can think he's approving of my sin. It's so that someone can realize, you know, he's being patient. He's, 
he, it's his love. He, he's, he, he's being patient with me. And Paul says, you hope that that long-suffering, that patience of God, gives time for someone to come to repentance. Be careful when the south wind is blowing softly, especially when it's in the winter. That's suspect. The south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing from there, they sailed close by Crete. Now, the problem with warnings is always this. The problem with warnings are they are attached to the future. Nobody needs to warn you about your past. You've already lived through that. Warnings, whether it's from the scripture, we sense it from the Holy Spirit, um, traffic signs, whatever it might be, warnings are relative to the future. And any warning then demands that the person or persons who are being warned say, maybe it's not wise to do this. Maybe it's not good to do this. And because it deals with the future and it's not tangible, that really we only take hold of that by faith. And it says here, the south wind was blowing softly and they then supposing that they have obtained their purpose, they loosed, and they sailed close by Crete. They try to stay in close to the coast. We're going to find out they're getting blown out in the sea. They wanted to sail close and get over here to that port. Verse 14. I don't know how much longer we're going to go here. Verse 14 says this, but, now that's always a bad circumstance, when you don't listen to the words of Paul, the scripture's telling you one thing, you decide you're, you listen to the captain or somebody else, the south wind blows softly, and you're supposing that means God is happy what I'm doing, but, which means forget everything else that we just heard. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called... Now, you may have a translation that says typhoon, hurricane. Some translations even say a nor'easter. This is certainly a word. The Eurocladin or Eurocliden was a word that was common in the Greek. It was common among sailors. And it has to do with this huge wind that comes blowing down from the north. Many ships wrecked through that and so forth. It must have been extremely cold. It says they get out there. Look. They think that they're just going to go around sailing close and get into Phoenice, this port. They think it's going to be easy. They're going to go under here and get to... But once they get out to sea, they get caught in this wind. And then for weeks, the sails down, they can't steer. They don't know where they're at. They can't read the stars. You know, the, we're going to see they, they, they do underfrapping of the ship. They take these huge ropes... They go under the bottom of the ship. They somehow get over the bow and pull them back and tie the ship with a winch together so it doesn't go. You know, when, you, when they're frapping your ship and you're in a storm, that's not a good thing. That's not soft wind blowing, you know, the south wind blowing softly. So it says, this tempest arose against them. The wind here called Eurocladin. Um, worldly wisdom right there is prominent spiritual 
warning, has taken a back seat with these people. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, look, we let her drive. They just gave up. Couldn't steer, couldn't use the sails. They just let her drive. And as they let her drive, it tells us, and we'll, we'll take more time with that next week, and they come under a certain island which is called Clauda. We had much work to come by the boat. Um, and it's going to start telling us about the undergirdings, the things that they had to do. Now we're headed into the middle of the storm, and I really want to take my time in the storm. As long as it's not my storm, I want to take my time in the storm. So um, let's end here tonight. We good? Yeah, you, you don't want to drown, so we'll end right there. And uh, let me pray for you guys. Let's do this. Uh, we'll worship. And uh, if you feel you're in a Euroclidon tonight and you want prayer, I encourage you to stand as we worship. I encourage those of you who are around them, you know, to, to go and to pray for them, to lay hands upon them and to minister to them in the name of the Lord. We know if Jesus was here, he would just come walking across the water in the storm. But he's not physically. He's here spiritually. So if he prompts you to represent him and to go pray for that person on behalf of the Lord, I just encourage you to do that. So let me pray. And then if you feel like, you know what, I am in a storm and I need to find out what the scripture says. And I did listen to the wrong advice and I need to get things back on course again. I'll ask you to stand. But Lord, we settle our hearts, Lord Jesus. We look to you, Lord. And Lord, these things are filled with lessons. This is not just history, though it is, Lord. They're not just something for us to, to search through so we can understand ancient navigation, Lord. There are voices here. There are warnings here. There are things being said. And Lord, there's a man you love, and more than one man, Luke and Aristarchus, that are your servants, your disciples, that you allow a storm to surround them, Lord. And sometimes, Lord Jesus, we find ourselves in that circumstance, and we, we're racking our brains thinking, did I do this wrong? Did I do that wrong? Is it because of this or because of that? And Lord, we, we need your ministry at that point. We need your grace. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here this, morning, this evening that fears, feels that way, Lord. They're, they're caught in something, Lord. It's not peaceable, Lord. That it's just driving them at this point. And they need the ministry of your word and of your spirit, Lord. Would you, Lord, as we worship, would you touch them, Lord, and encourage them, Lord? Let them tell their friends how wonderful you are and how powerful you are. Lord, we think of that one family in Patara, whose son ended up in Myra and changed so much of the world, Lord. Give us a chance tonight, experiencing your mercy, Lord, to be honest with those around us of your goodness and your power, Lord. 
You know what we're asking. Father, we pray you do it and glorify the name of Jesus. We know, Lord, you certainly want to do that in this day and age. So, Lord, we look to you now. We lift our voice. We pray in your name.